We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha. Welcome to the we Layman's Lounge podcast, a ministry of the laymanslounge.com, where we exist to bring everyday theology for everyday life. On the other line is Dr. Michael Kruger. Dr. Kruger, what was the first tape or CD you ever bought or was given to you or you found? Oh, man, I don't know if I have an answer to that. Um, but the fact that you use the word tape tells me that you already know how old I am. See, so that's uh, you're already <laughs> revealing that to the audience. So um, I'd have what to go about back the and first look. concert, first concert or show. Or... I think U2 was the first concert I ever went to. And I'm still a big U2 fan after all these years. So did you um, did you like like uh turn on a lighter and wave it in the air did you get did you get involved <laughs> I, I i did not have a lighter there was plenty of them around me at the time though i can i can definitely attest to that <laughs> um but uh no it was fun i mean i, I love their music I, I you know i'm i grew up in the 80s so you can imagine that u2 was front and center in that time period and beyond i mean they've shown themselves to have tremendous uh, staying power obviously over many decades but yeah that was the the decade i grew up in okay right on um, mine was Garth Brooks, by the way. Rope oh, the yeah. Wind. Yeah. I love Garth Brooks. He's an 80s <laughs> guy, too, in, in many ways. Late 80s. Legend. So. Um, Dr. Kruger is president and Samuel C. Patterson, professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the Charlotte campus of Refor Reformed Theological Seminary. His website, Canon Fodder, um, basically has posts on every subject that you <laughs> that you should be concerned with. And that's at michaeljkruger.com. We'll um, post the show notes. And I'm not going to lie. I think I wrote you a few years ago. Like you didn't know me. I didn't know you. And you wrote me back. And that was so kind of you. So thank you. But everyone, don't write him now. <laughs> well, yeah, you, I'm glad I did. Sometimes I run into people and they say, hey, I wrote you. And I'm, I'm bracing for the fact that I may not have had time to respond and <laughs> feel guilty about it. So I'm glad I responded. So yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> uh, he's like Dr. Kruger is one of those guys who's... Um, now, I'm not just saying this tickle your ear because there's not a whole lot of you that we talked to, but one of those well-rounded scholars um, and just a, you know, a, a Christian sort of writes in a bunch of areas. So there's, of course, like the classics, um, his sort of current modern classics, Canon Revisited, Establishing the Origins and Authority of the New Testament. And then the other one is the Heresy of Orthodoxy, How Contemporary Culture's Fascination with diversity has reshaped our understanding of early Christianity. Um, and then recently he's released Hebrews for you, which is God's word for you. Good series. And then surviving religion 101 letters to a Christian student on keeping the faith in college. And these ones just came out. And then a book we're going to discuss today, the 10 commandments of progressive Christianity on cruciform quick, but I will say, I think you had a post on the Gospel Coalition. It's like 10 questions and answers on like why the the canon is legitimate. I don't know if you remember that, but I've like sent that to, to probably 48 people. It was a helpful little, helpful little one. You remember that one? You know what I'm I talking do. about? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, that's, that's actually it. been one of the most popular uh, little articles. And I think it's based on the series I do on my website or 10 things every Christian to know about the canon. So it's yeah, that's uh, that was a lot of fun to write, and people seem to resonate with it. 
required reading. All right, Dr. Kruger, there's there's a theme in your, in your writings that sort of I'm seeing, right? And that is you're concerned with, and you wish to speak to like the bankruptcy of Christian liberalism, challenges to the faith and your desire <clears throat> that seeks to like take every thought captive and destroy arguments and lofty opinions. <clears throat> so the question is like, why this, uh, why this posture? That is what, like what happened to you? Or did you start to see around you or what was stirred in you that caused you to speak out about like the folly of these views and, and the need to fortify our faith, especially in a day and age where it's just all supposed to be like coconuts and pineapples and peace signs. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's actually my story I tell in, in the book you just mentioned, Surviving Religion 101, which is written for college students. But in the beginning, I give a little bit of my own autobiography, at least a very brief snippet of it, where I found myself in a religion class as an undergraduate at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And it was very formative for me because I had a professor who was very aggressive in his attacks on the Christian faith. He was very persuasive and uh, compelling uh, and had a lot of objections and challenges I'd never heard before in my life. And so I found myself sort of quickly slipping underwater, so to speak, without really knowing what to do. And then I decided that I would sort of probe deeper into the issues of, of the New Testament's reliability and see if there were any answers to the questions he was, he was bringing up. And I discovered a whole new world. It was a whole new world I never knew was there, which is the whole world of Christian origins and text and canon issues. And I was fascinated with it. And I realized something, which is that you're only hearing half the story when you listen to one side of the debate. Yeah. And so it was uh, that that sparked my interest in, in biblical scholarship and led me down the, the path of a biblical scholar now. And, and of course, the listeners may know my story. That professor was Bart Ehrman, who is one of the most you know, well-known writers today uh, challenging the Christian faith. So, yeah, that, that, that formed a lot of, of me. And so my concern for making sure people hear the whole story is, is because I didn't hear the whole story at first. And it took my own work to, to figure out what the other side was. And so I'm hoping now to give people you know, the other side so they can uh, make a make a informed decision for themselves. Like, how can we even, you know, in 2021, how, how can we even hold the ear of an audience when when these days are marked by, you know, like the intolerance of tolerance? Yeah, it, it is hard. First of all, um, you're not gonna be able to get everybody's ear and not everybody's going to listen. Um, there's many people who will, you know, turn off the switch rather quickly. Yeah. One of the things I like to point out as quickly as I can in a conversation with folks is, look, you know, you, you know, aren't you uh, on a quest for truth? Aren't you trying to understand what's right and wrong in the world and good and bad and, and what is real and, and not real? Why would mm -hmm. you not then want to explore uh, what other people think or what other people have to say? In other words, there's a remarkable amount of intolerance in the very position that is supposed to be defending tolerance. Right. right. Um, and so in as much as we can point that out, usually it softens people and they say, okay, let's, let's have a conversation. All I want to do is have a dialogue about what you think and what I think, which is the way it's supposed to be. And we can interact about it. Why not, why not have it that way rather than shutting people down? And <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's what I hope most people, most people do take you up on that. If you can get to that point where you can just ask them to do it. Um, I think most people are pretty reasonable in the end, but they, they get so worked up. They never get a chance to really, have that posture. Mm, duly noted. I, I've noticed, actually noticed after I read this book, <clears throat> the, the book we're going to discuss today, that I realized, I used to be like guns blazing, which probably wasn't good, but I realized, I think I've become kind of timid um, 
and, you know, and you even sort of touch on some of those things, but I think I've sort of become, and I think a lot of people have become timid because we just don't want to like, everyone gets so mad and we just don't want to be like, you're on the other side of history. How can we like, how can we motivate ourselves to, to speak from the overflow of the heart, knowing that what comes out to them is just like the worst thing in the world. Yeah. So one of the things I, I cover in a number of my books um, is trying to strike that balance between, you know, not being timid and afraid to speak, which in our world, it's easy to be afraid to speak, right? Because you know, as soon as you speak up, you're going to get, get creamed. And this is particularly true on a college campus uh, when I think about my book, Surviving Religion 101. But then there's the flip side too, which is that, that Christians can become as caustic and overly aggressive and bombastic as, as some of our uh, counterparts on the other side. And so we need to learn how to have conversations where, yes, we're, we're, we're courageous in the sense that we're willing to speak truth, but we're also speaking truth in love and we're speaking truth with respect uh, and the appropriate amount of care and gentleness to those who we disagree with. Um, sometimes I, I, I get the impression that, you know, the goal in some discussions is to just sort of, you know, embarrass the, 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 the other side. Whereas yeah. I, you, you rarely win anyone over by embarrassing them. Um, most of the time you win people over uh, by, by respecting them and then show them their, where their argument needs work. And hopefully they're willing to listen in those circumstances. So, you know, I, I don't know how we get there. We all have a ways to go to get there, but, but trying to, to, to strike that balance is I think a very biblical place to shoot for. And, and I think we, we can all tell when we're falling off one into that extreme or the other. I just um, literally the Holy Spirit just convicted me because I realized every once in a while when I do speak up, I actually do take the approach of embarrassment. To be honest, I think a lot of times I'll be like, <laughs> just tell them, you know, there's a difference between like, you know, painting a picture of folly and just sort of being a jerk about it. So it is. And, 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 and to be clear, I think the Bible's very open about the fact that non-Christian thinking is fallacious and non-Christian thinking when you really see it fully is foolish, but it doesn't, it doesn't suggest that the goal is to mock and deride and tear down mm. uh, people that we, we have those conversations with. I think sometimes um, if they can kind of come to that realization themselves, rather than just being told, I yeah. think is when you really realize you've, you, you, you've made progress is they realize they kind of just are out there in the breeze realizing, wow, wait a second. My view really is not as coherent as I thought. And I really need to rethink it. Yeah. Yeah. And I also love that you just gave us a, um, you just used the word bombastic, which I haven't heard since I like the N the NRSV Titus was in heavy circulation. <laughs> That's a good word. You gotta, you gotta dig it up every now and then. Yeah. Bombastic it, it, nonsense is what yeah, I think I remember. I, yeah. Well, it, you know, there's a lot of people in our culture that are bombastic and we don't <laughs> want to be one, one more is, you know, my speech to my students. Um, you know, there's plenty of people out there, you know, behaving that way. And is, is uh, we, we want to distinguish ourselves both in terms of our content and in the manner in which we, we deliver it. Mm -hmm. So in, in your book, the 10 commandments of progressive Christianity, you said, quote, liberal Christianity is not Christianity. I just want to say that again. Liberal yeah. Christianity is not Christianity, end quote. At so, least as defined in my book, correct. Right. Now, people will throw around the term liberal Christianity for lots of things, but just so the listener is aware, it's in terms of the way my book defines it, it's not Christianity. Yeah, and, you know, that's where I was going to go. How yeah. can we know if we're, if we're like in those waters or we maybe have a foot in it or a toe? 
Like, and so given the fact that, you know, many Christians, you know, North America or whatever, maybe aren't confessional and don't even really know about the creeds. Are there like marks or like a litmus test of subjects that can be used yeah. to determine soundness or? I think so. Uh, you know, the, the, the idea that liberal Christianity is not Christianity is, is me borrowing from Jay Gresham Machen, just to be clear. Machen wrote a very famous book called Christianity and Liberalism, which um, was published in the early 20th century. And if anybody who's listening to this uh, podcast hasn't read Machen's book, it's just must reading. And, and he, he's much more eloquent than me. And certainly his book is, is famous for a reason. Mm. But what he said in there is essentially the same thing, which is liberal Christianity is just an entirely different religious system and doesn't have any claim to be Christian when the dust settles. Um, and he wasn't using that language about it not being Christian as some sort of you know, pejorative slam, rather it was just an objective fact that it, mm -hmm. it's not distinctively Christian in any recognizable way. Now, what are the things that make something distinctively Christian? Well, I cover, of course, in the book, what those things are, but they're gonna be core things. You know, One of the things I point out is that the people I, I go through in the book, Richard Rohr and uh, some others who are popular spiritual speakers today, they deny not just the authority of the Bible, they deny the divinity of Jesus, they deny the nature of the gospel being this idea that we're saved by faith alone and not by works. Um, they, they deny this idea of objective truth. They end up saying things that lead towards what we would argue is unchristian behavior, like one whole chapter in, in Roar's, or one whole line in Roar's idea is that, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do with your bodies sexually, as long as you just love somebody. And when you when all when all said and done on something like that, you're 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 looking at something that that is not historically uh, a, a Christian religion. It's just another religion entirely. And I, I just think someone just has to say that because here's what happens: people think that they can claim the label Christian, even though everything in their belief system is a modification in a major way of what Christians actually believed yeah. historically. And so I'm like, well, this become labels become meaningless at this point. You mm -hmm. can just call yourself anything. And so mm -hmm. I think we need to we need to fight for our label. We need to say, no, not everything counts as Christian. Mm -hmm. And uh, what you're advocating may sound trendy and, and, and unique, even though, as I point out in the book, it's actually not. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. not Christian. So you could totally rebuke me here. I'm just going to wear the heart on the sleeve and and all you listeners, you could hate me. But I remember one time I met a guy who was a Christian. He was so bright. And he was very compelling. But I just like I was trying to gauge him. Right. I was trying to as like, is this guy like is is he sound? Is this the faith once delivered? And um, and I'll be honest, my litmus test was like gay marriage. And I don't know, like. And I'm just saying that because I want, I would assume like a lot of people that might be their thing as far as, you know, yeah, I don't know. I just wonder if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think, you know, you're, there's going to be a point where you're going to have to get to issues like that. And I mm -hmm. think issues like that matter very much. And I suppose if someone's looking for a quick way to suss out where someone's coming from, you could always pick a really hot topic <laughs> and find out what they think about it. And you could probably tell pretty quickly where they fall on many things, although not mm. all things. Mm. Here's the trick with that question, is that question is more meaningful when it flows from something rather than, than is the main thing. In other words, mm. there's many people who are against gay marriage who are not even, not even Christians. Mm. Muslims are against gay marriage, mm. but, but we would also have our differences with Muslims. Jehovah Witnesses would be against gay marriage. Right. Mormons would be against gay marriage. Right. So 
it's is it an important moral issue? Yes. Does the Bible have something to say about it? Of course. But believing that issue doesn't make someone a Christian, which is why I want to back it up to the more fundamental convictions. You know, where what's your ultimate standard for what you believe? Where do you turn for for authority? Do you believe that God has spoken? Who's the person of Jesus Christ? So these are the kind of questions that are creedal. And by creedal, what I mean is in the ancient church, when you'd want to identify yourself as a a Christian, what were the things you talked about? Mm -hmm. Um, And they were, they were core things that God is the creator of all things. He made heaven and earth that Jesus Christ is the son of God. He's the divine God in flesh Um, that that we believe in a Trinitarian God, father, son, and Holy spirit that we're saved by grace alone, by faith um, and not by our own merits. That that's, those are the creedal things. Mm. Um, Now, then from that, do you get to things like gay marriage? Well, of course, that's a very important uh, mm. corollary and, and you could argue implication, but don't, we don't want to confuse the implication of, of, of our position with our position. Sure. Sure. And this is the, I don't, and I don't think if it it's, it must be like the modernity in me to where I both am like camping out on this question. And I'm like, Oh no, like leave this question. It's like everything wrapped in one. Um, and so I often, I have people just even rebuke me for like, the question I asked. So you also are free to do that because I think sometimes I think like a lot of other people. So please speak freely. Now, having said that, I know that I think I was talking with like an Anglican once and um, I know there's some really sound Anglicans and then some are insane. Like, I'm like, whoa, where did these people, like, where did you come from with this? And, um, and they, and this person fully, um, would like affirm the, like the apostles creed, but I knew where they stood on like gay marriage. And so does that make that just, can we just make up a scenario where someone is, let's just say, however it's possibly sound in every area, except for. Yeah. Yeah. That that, that happens. It's pretty rare. It depends on what you mean by sound in every area. The, you know, the apostles creed is, is, is a lot broader than some other creedal affirmations. Mm. And it doesn't get into issues like inspiration or inherency. Um, And so I think it's fair to say that once you start including some of these other things, it's pretty rare that you'd come across someone who believes, okay, Jesus Christ is the only way to go to heaven. He's he's the savior of sinners. We're all sinners. We need salvation by grace. Um, And the Bible's the inspired and errant word of God. And I believe in gay marriage. That, That is a rare creature. Do they mm-hmm. exist? Yes, because you have guys like Matthew Vines out there who are writing books who are trying to wed what we would typically call evangelical Christianity mm. um, and gay marriage together. And so I think he's got a very high mountain to climb. And I don't think he's successfully climbed it. But yes, those those folks are out there. And you, you, you'll be interested to know that they're probably more common than you think. But they're still vastly a minority. Most people who are going to go down the gay marriage path are going to are going to take with it many other doctrines, too. Mm. Um, and they tend to be package deals which is why I think the, the Matthew Vines system is admirable on one level and that he retains what we call many evangelical truths, but mm. it's such an anomaly with the rest of the system that you realize it's just not sustainable. Okay. It's just a, at some point, it's just going to collapse in on itself. That's good. So la- last question before I get into like the nuts and bolts of the book. Um, do, you think pe- do you think people like modify and pervert, you know, eternal biblical truth? Because it's not that they're like trying to be heretics or trying to be progressive, but more so it's that they just want to like respond to issues of the day. And as far as they can deduce with their quote, quote, like good intentions 
orthodoxy just hasn't gone far enough. And so you follow what I'm saying? You, is that a possible scenario? Uh, in other words, do people ever pervert the faith because they think they're saving it? They're trying to maybe contextualize it? it, maybe. Yes. Yes. The answer to that is absolutely yes. And there's actually, people don't realize a long history of this. Mm. So what you may be surprised to know is that in the world of, of Christian apologetics, which is an admirable world with a great long history, some of the most significant heretics in the church were Christian apologists. Mm. And they started off with a very noble endeavor to defend the faith. But sometimes you can be so zealous to defend the faith that you end up trying to shape the faith to make it as palatable and acceptable as you could to the modern world you're in. And so you end up wow. actually sacrificing the very thing you're trying to save wow. in a really ironic turn. And there's, a, there's story after story in the patristic time period of this. But one of the most interesting is when the German rationalism hit, uh, a lot of the German rationalists saw themselves as defenders of the faith in a way that we would find bizarre now. So a good example of this is Heinrich Paulus, who's an 18th century German deist, or actually Christian, not a deist, who saw himself as a defender of the faith. And he realized that the biggest objection in his day, and when you think about the 18th century, this won't surprise you, is the idea that, there, that miracles were real, that, mm. that you can actually have the supernatural. And so he said, look, Christianity's not going to survive, said Paulus, if we keep the supernatural in it. So his idea is let's purge the supernatural elements out of the Gospels. Um, and take them out so that what you have left is just a good moral religion and we can all get behind it. Mm -hmm. So in his, his mind, obviously we would argue flawed uh, mind, was that you're saving the faith by taking mm -hmm. out the offensive parts. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, get in line because he's not the only one to do it. And, and people are doing that today. And you might argue that the issue we were just discussing with Matthew Vines is one of those issues. Perhaps they think, well, look, you know, the world's going to sink us if we don't adjust on our mm -hmm. views of sexuality. So let's keep the whole package and change in this one spot. Right. That is, uh, there's a long history of that in the church. Um, mm. And we need, and the more you study the history of it, the more you can see it for what it is. Mm. So like in, in speaking of these beliefs and these, you know, commandments of progressive Christianity, um, you said, quote, but take note, each of these commandments is partially true. Indeed, this is what makes, uh, this is, that is what makes this list and progressive Christianity as a whole so challenging. It's a master class in half truths. So, end quote. So, what are some of the most prominent, like, half truths? I mean, that's a very helpful term, by the way. What are some of the most prominent half truths that have, like, sort of snuck into the rank and file Christian belief system in America? And then, as the part of that is, why should a, like, a, maybe even a busy mom care about that? Wow. Yeah. Where do I begin? I mean, almost every one of these 10 commandments in my book and, and, and I get the 10 commandments just so the, the, the listener knows from I didn't make them up um, just so they know um, these are actually a list that, 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 that the progressive Christians themselves have made. Um, it was a list that was popularized by Richard Rohr, um, but actually an original book by Philip Gully. And so the, the wording is basically identical to their wording. Mm -hmm. um, and what they do is they, 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 they form antitheses that aren't that, that, that aren't fair. So the, the very first one's a good example of this. Jesus, um, Jesus is a model for living more than an object for worship. Mm. So they're, 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 their question is, well, wh what do you think about Jesus as, as more of? Do you think of him more as like divine that you should worship him? Or do you think of him more as like an example that you should follow? And their argument is, look, he really should be an example uh, that you should follow. And so they, they, they sort of put aside the divinity of Jesus, therefore someone you worship, and then rather you should just follow his moral mm. example. So you, you realize that they're trying to try to create a dichotomy here between these two things, pit them against each other. 
Um, and what I point out in the book is that that's, there's a half truth to that. There is a sense in which Jesus, of course, is also a model for living. I mean, you, you, you hear the phrase, what would Jesus do? Or I should be more like Jesus and we want to be shaped into his image. So is he a, an example for us in that sense? Well, yes. But the idea that he's more that than, than, than divine, I think, falls apart as a system. Because if he is, in fact, this God in flesh, if he's God incarnate, then why would that not be among the most important facts in the universe? <laughs> That, right. that, that's exactly why we follow his moral example, because he is, in fact, distinctive from mm-hmm. just every other sinner out there. And so mm-hmm. this is they, they're picking up on this this thing that, you know, you're going to feel tension and they want you to pick just one. Yeah. And, I, and, 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 and my argument is, no, Jesus is both. He's both a model for our living, but also an object of worship. And I'd, I'd argue the worship is the priority there. Mm. What do you think are some of the. And it might some of, be some of these 10, but are the more the pop culture half-truths that like my my dear mom might be subject to without even knowing oh yeah this book is or goldie's book i should say is filled with those there's so many um (laughs) that sucks uh yeah i'll give you the the second chapter is is a good one the title of the second chapter which is the second commandment is affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness now that sounds like a big sentence, right? Affirming their potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. It sounds like you'd hear that on Oprah Winfrey. And you would actually hear something like that probably on Oprah Winfrey. And, and what is that trying to get at? It's trying to say, look, you know, stop always talking about how people are sinners. Stop, stop beating people down. Stop, mm-hmm. stop, stop reminding us of our brokenness because don't Christians or don't humans also have great potential. And so why are we being so negative all the time? Let's be positive. Okay, yeah. and, it, and it creates the Christian message um, with the sense that the Christian message is sour grapes. It's negative. It's pessimistic. Don't you want to be optimistic? So let's mm-hmm. break out of the Christian message and be more optimistic. So you talked about what, you know, the average person, you know, the average woman who's just kind of, how does this affect my life? Or for that matter, the average man, how does this affect my life? Well, this is a very tangible idea, right? Which is maybe I should da- downplay the seriousness of, of sin and total depravity. Mm. And, and, and upplay human potential, we're not as bad as you think. Mm. Now, that sounds all good on the surface. What people don't realize is lurking behind that, and I point this out in that chapter, is that as soon as you downplay the seriousness of our sin, it's not a big deal, it's not really a problem, then you, you're faced with this question of, well, what did Christ die for exactly? What was wow. the cross designed to do? And you realize that the corollary of that is that you end up making the cross rather insignificant. In fact, wow. you make it about something other than sins because remember, remember sins aren't a big deal. Right. So what is the cross all about? Well, not about dying for your sins. Now the cross is suddenly morphed into Jesus just showing us what, it, what it's like to you know, be willing to follow his beliefs faithfully no matter what or something oh, like this. Man. And so you realize that what sounded really innocuous on the front end ends up again robbing Christianity of its fundamental uh, beliefs. Oh, man. Well, those implications. So I, I think um, what you notate as the fifth commandment of progressive Christianity is one that I encounter the most. And that is the commandment that, quote, inviting questions <laughs> is more valuable than supplying answers. Yeah, quote. I love this one. This is and in that chapter, you say, quote, it's an effective strategy. Position yourself as humble and inquisitive merely on a journey of discovery, then position the other side as less than humble dispensers of rigid dogma. You're just a well-meaning seeker. They're mean entrenched know-it-alls, end quote. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think that captures it. I mean, you know, I've seen time and time again in, in, in these dialogues that, that particularly those on the progressive Christianity side do, in fact, present themselves as, you know, meek, humble questers. Look, I'm only, I'm only asking questions. Why are you Christians so defensive? Mm. You know, why, why can't you ask questions? Isn't the whole point is to just ask questions rather than always trying to give answers to things? Well, there, there is a, a very good rhetorical strategy they're using there where they're positioning themselves as humble truth seekers and you're the one that's, that's already pre-committed to, um, to right. religious dogma. My, 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 my pushback on that is twofold. One is, I think it's, it's a caricature of Christianity that, that Christians don't ask good questions. I, I disagree. Are there, are there some that don't ask good questions? I'm sure. Um, there's probably some churches out there that, that squash any question and will, will not let you ask them. But generally speaking, I think that's just unfair. The, the Christian circles that I know and run in actually are quite willing to ask really hard questions. But the, but the other side of, of my rebuttal is, I think, more to the point, which is that the idea that the other side is just never giving answers but only asking questions is simply untrue. Yeah. It's remarkable how much they're sort of smuggling in their own certainty through the back door. You know, on the one hand, they're not certain, but then if you press them, you realize, well, they're quite certain about a great many things. Um, <laughs> and, and they sort of just don't sort of own it on the front end. And yeah. so they are, they're on the, on the front side, they're saying you can't be dogmatic. And they just kind of sneak their own absolutism, absolutism through, the, through the back door in a way that hopefully you can't see. But anybody in a dialogue who can perceive that can just point that out. They're like, wait a second, you just said that that you can't know, but you seem to know a lot. In fact, right. you're, you're so sure what you know that you're sure I'm absolutely wrong uh, <laughs> and not just wrong, but even morally offensive. And so you can, you can point out those things. That's good. Is this one um, might hold, this one might be cousins with the one where it just might be a different version of it or a different way to communicate it, where someone says something like, and my, and my question is when you encounter this following one, what, how do you respond or what, what do you filter it through? And that's something like this. Oh, I'm so happy for you that you've, you found something really, really good for you. I'm so, that's great. You know? So regardless of it, if it's an invitation for you to speak into that or a lot, but can you, can you sort of diagnose that? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think sort of someone says, well, I'm glad you've, you found something that works for you. Uh, the, the implication behind that is, well, everybody just finds their own truth. You found your truth. It's not necessarily my truth. So good for you. You're existentially satisfied. And that's all religion's designed to do anyway. And so, you know, they kind of give you the condescending pat on the head that, you know, be on your way now. Yeah. Um, you found your, your little truth. And, and if you're happy with it, well, then fine. What, what, so, so first thing that's implied in that is that, that truth is relative, right? Everybody finds right. their own. The, the second thing that's implied in that is that we'll let you have your truth as long as there's no implications on us. In other words, you can keep your little private truth to yourself and enjoy it like your own little private meal, but don't think I have to eat your meal. I don't have to eat your food. As soon as you try to make me eat your food, well, now I'm really upset. And so there's a sense in which part of what they're objecting to you or, or, or they want you to see is that I'm gonna to try to privatize your religion, religious views. I'm gonna make it clear that whatever you believe is so isolated to you that if you for one millisecond try to break out of that and imply there's implications for anybody else, wow. well, we're gonna have we're gonna have words with you. And wow. so the, the so the idea behind those sorts of phrases, I'm glad this works for you, is is you know, there's a lot more to it than that. It sounds like a congratulations. And I think I think most people mean it in a well-intended sense. Sure. But I think there's a lot of philosophical baggage in that phraseology. They don't notice they don't say something like, wow, 
you mean you 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 think that Jesus is the Son of God that, that died for sinners? Well, maybe I should consider that. <laughs> or or what am I going to do when I stand before God someday? Or wow, I never thought about whether there's a God. No, notice there's no sense that there's any personal implications mm-hmm. for them. And I think that tells you what they're what they're really doing with those statements. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, one of the more prominent ones that I hear and that you notate is the claim of um, you know, you 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 notate this mantra in in one of the commands, and that is deeds over creeds. Oh yeah. Can you unpack? I hear this one a lot. And in fact, there's a part of me that is drawn to that a little bit, right? Like, yeah, I want to, you know what? It, it always is accompanied by that. Um, I don't know who a CC that, that Frank Sanz is a, a CC quote, like preach the gospel and sometimes use words or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Can you hit us with, hit us with that? And why, and why does that appeal to me a little bit? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, when I said at the very beginning that this is this is a masterclass in half truths, it really is. I mean, when you hear think deeds over creeds, there's a side of everybody, and, and you and me included. We're like, you know what? That kind of sounds refreshing. Let let's stop fighting about doctrine. Let's stop bickering about theology. Aren't we already weary of that? It's a bunch of hair splitting. Let's just love people, mm. do the right thing, and then we'll be we'll all be good. Mm. And you know, and if you were working on a pure rhetoric level, you'd probably get away with something like that. Here's the problem: is that you know, creeds or deeds, not creeds is a misnomer on multiple levels. For one, uh, your, your, your deeds flow from your creeds. In other words, part of your, part of your creed leads to your deeds. So, you know, the creedal belief of Christians is that we should follow God's word, which has lots of implications for our behavior. So as soon as I start talking about a deed being good or a deed being bad, where do I get that from? Mm. Well, I get it from my creed. Look at that. I just said, I shouldn't worry about creeds. Well, now I'm, now I've got deeds floating in thin air with no foundation. So the question then becomes, well, whose deeds? Is it your wow. version of right and wrong or my mm-hmm. version of right and wrong? And suddenly you have this privatization of things again, where mm-hmm. you basically, the, the, the whole thing just boils down to do what you want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, is that that profound? What if, I, what, if, what if I said my big philosophy is do what you want? People wouldn't be that impressed with it. But if I say deeds over creeds, it sounds really good. Yeah. But ultimately, it's the same exact advice. Mm-hmm. Deeds over creeds is, is, is basically the same advice to do what you want, because if, if you can't do what you want, then basically what I'm saying is do my deeds, do what I think you should do. <laughs> but now I've just made a person the ultimate authority, and basically I become autocratic. And so, um, you know, if this is what I'm trying to point out, is that once you take Christ, the Christian worldview out, you're left with just humans running the universe. Well, I can tell you this, you don't want humans running the universe. Humans are much worse gods than God. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. If I'm going to choose a God, I'm not choosing humans as a God. I'd rather have God as God. And so what you realize is what, what, what Gully and, 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 and Richard War have done is they basically just replaced God with humans, and they mm. don't want you to notice. They, wow. they, they think you don't notice. And part mm. of my book is, look, I'm, we're not fooled. We, we are noticing. What you really want to do is just say humans are their own God. And I'm like, you can go that route, but just be honest about it. Mm. Don't pretend like it's Christianity. And that's exactly what he's yeah. trying to do. Yeah, this is a good, like, like, um, class and implicational thinking you're you're taking us to school again so what about what about if you could just in the last one for the specific chapters peacemaking is more important than power and that i feel like that is especially sort of this last year or whatever that is really one that is um people want to make sure they're on the peace peacemaking side and they don't want to shake it up yeah and, um yeah go ahead and just that inst- and you also have sort of another one in there and connected with institutions where I think there's sort of an overlap. 
So this is, the, it's funny you bring this up. This is the one chapter um, where I think he gets closest to, to almost saying what we could say is a generally good chapter um, or generally good uh, point. And so, you know, I'm talking about Gully's book here, uh, his, 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 you know, concept here of pursue, pursue peacemaking rather than power. Um, here's what I think he gets right. I think he's absolutely correct that, that there is a problem in our culture today, and in, I will argue in our church culture today, towards authoritarian, domineering leadership. Yeah. Um, and just as a side note, I've written about this also on my website, which you mentioned earlier. Um, and we could, I use the term spiritual abuse, but you call it what you want. It's basically heavy handed, domineering, top down, hierarchical leadership that Christians execute in a very sort of harsh way. And in as much as is Goli is saying, that's not right, we ought to amen it. It's, a, it's absolutely not right um, th that, that power is not to be wielded that way, that Christ cares very much about gentle leadership, um, that we ought to call out abusive leadership structures when, mm. when they're there. And, and, and you, you hinted at this, in our culture today, coming off of 2020, really coming off of 2019, there's plenty of things to point out in our world where that kind of heavy-handed leadership is concerning. Okay, we agree on the problem, but what we don't agree is on the solution. Mm. What, 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 what Goli and Rohr want to say is, well, look, here's the solution to heavy-handed authoritative powers have no power. In other words, you know, the way you solve the church abusing its power is just realize that the church shouldn't have any, mm. or there's no real power in, 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 in leadership. Mm. Um, and I would, I would push back and say, what we don't need to do is do away with leaders. We mm. need to get the right kind of leaders who are gentle and careful uh, and, 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 and truthfully uh, more like Jesus. Mm. Um, and so th there's a sense in which, you know, he's, he's saying that, that, you, that the problem is, is authority in general. And mm. the way I would say it is, no, it's, the problem is, 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 is authority abused, mm. the, wrong, mm. the wrong kind of authority. So, uh, so I think he's got a lot more going for him in this chapter, but I still think there's some, some, some room to push back and sure. made that clear. So I don't know if maybe you could give us a, a case study of a current hot topic um, or just, you know, a, a hot button issue or, or even just things that are happening around us that we all care about. Christians care about and, and, and everyone else seems to be caring about where could we, where could we potentially drift away and and how and in what way can we be rooted and remain faithful i don't i don't know if you have anything off the top of your mind or that you could bring in but you know like race relations or abortion or trump and trumpism versus you know the right and the left or yeah well we we, we were sort of on what i think is 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 one of those topics so if you think about like uh harvey weinstein the me too movement sexual abuse, and I even mentioned spiritual abuse, when the church trips and falls on its face in these areas, and, it, and it's got plenty of examples of that happening, we've got to realize that there, we're losing people here in a way that, that, that's concerning. And there, there, there's some people that, 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 that look at those issues and go, you know what? It seems like the secular world's doing better at calling out abuse than Christians. Mm. Why, why aren't Christians care? Why don't Christians care about this? Yeah. Um, why are they not speaking up about this yeah. now? Now, in, in the defense of Christians, lots of Christians are OK. There are some Christians that, that would speak up about it and mm. plenty would have spoken up about Harvey Weinstein's awful behavior. Mm. Um, but 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 I think there's there's some 
element of truth there. And I think what we need to recognize is that we need to give robust answers to these questions because it's actually the Christian worldview that has a reason to care about abuse. Yeah. We, we have a reason for why it's wrong. We have a reason because when you do that to somebody, they're made in the image of God. You mm. can't treat them like that. In other words, I have a moral ground for why we should be upset by it. The mm. irony is that for a lot of non-Christians who are really upset by it, they don't have anything in their worldview that justifies their yeah. being so upset. Yeah, so there's yeah. this weird reality. We're actually providing the soil out of which their moral outrage grows. Mm. Christianity is the thing that gives you a reason to be upset about Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. But yet there's, they don't have Christianity, but they're still upset about it. Yeah. And so what I want to point out to them is that, look, you need Christianity in order to make sense of the world. Why do people do this? And is anyone going to ever hold him accountable? Is there ever going to be real justice beyond just merely the fallible earthly justice? Wow. The answer is Christianity can provide all of that. That's so good. here's what happens when we fail at that, is that people get pulled into the progressive world because they think they're offering better solutions. And I, I don't uh -huh. want that to happen. I want, to, I want them to realize it's actually Christianity has got the most robust solution to those problems. Wow. I wrote that down because that's a good point. They get pulled on because they think the world is offering better solutions. I, yeah, I could I could see that. So just final question for you. It's been really good. If 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 for those who are listening right now, they're like, no, I'm I'm not a progressive Christian. Um, but they're like, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. I know those Ten Commandments and whatnot. Is there a call to action for them? Are they just to be informed and then or should should they should there's so many voices out there. Should should people start raising their voice and just balancing it, or should people just be ready for the discussion? Or what what would you say? Like, what do you what do you like commend to your people? You're talking about believers, right? People who profess yeah, Christ. yeah, believers, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you 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 first start with yourself, right? So rather than like I'm going to fix all the world's problems, which is typically the first place people go. First, my first suggestion is, look, do some, do some real self-introspection here, some real analysis of your own, not only your own heart, but your own belief system. Do you know why you believe? Mm -hmm. Do you believe historic Orthodox things? Are you a progressive Christian, so to speak, right? So make sure that you've got your, your, your theology down. Now, by saying you have your theology down, I'm not talking about every you know, mid-level debate within Christendom, okay? There's, <laughs> there's endless numbers of these, right? You can debate you know, baptism. You can debate uh, you know, you know, ordaining women or not ordaining. You could, you could ordain. You could, you could debate a hundred different things that Christians disagree on. You, could, you know, is Genesis teach literal six day or not? Okay, we could have all those discussions. But I'm talking about the historic, fundamental uh, affirmations of of Christianity throughout mm -hmm. the, the centuries. Mm -hmm. Once you sort of realize, okay, I'm on board. And then the next question is, how do I engage intelligently the world around me in a, in a balanced and, and, and reasonable way? And, and, you know, I see two extremes there and we kind of started there. So maybe this is a good way to kind of end it is that some people never engage the world. Just, they're just not going to do it. They're too scared. They're too nervous. They're too convinced they're going to get run over. And by the way, you will get run over as soon as you just admit that, then you just, you're going to be more free to do it. Um, and so some people never engage the world and other people let you get both guns out of the holster all the time. Yeah. Every debate is, is DEFCON one and it's nuclear war. And I'm like, look, you gotta, you, you gotta pull it back, man. You know, you've got to find a way to, to have a, a, a proportional uh, debate over these issues without having to go nuclear war every time, because as soon as you do that, then no one's going to engage you. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, first step, start with yourself. Second step, uh, uh, engage, but engage in a way that's balanced uh, mm -hmm. and respectful of the people you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So the book is The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity, and that's on uh, published by Cruciform Quick. 
Dr. Michael Kruger, and you could go to michaeljkruger.com for books, sermons, articles, so on. And we'll link those in the show notes. Thank you very much for your implicational thinking. So you, you give that to us as we're out here, brother. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be with you. Let's do it again. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad. We came to cheer the sad. We came to...